Okay, Rosemary, I was just saw the news article today where the Australian Post is going to stop delivering daily, and you're only going to get your mail occasionally in Australia. And I'm wondering, like, how the heck that works. Like, if you, when your mom sends you cookies, it's really important that they actually get there on time. Now you have to sit there in, in, the, in the post office for a couple of days before they reach your doorstep. I don't know how that works. That's one part of a functioning civilization is that the, the mail arrives on time. Would you like to explain? Yeah, it's, it's letters. Letters are going to be delivered every second day now instead of every, every day. Yeah, so if your mum cooks you biscuits, then you can still get them delivered promptly. Um, I think it's you know the same trend that you're seeing in the US, I'm sure, and that everyone's seeing around the world is that in terms of delivery, the profits are to be made in the parcel delivery and letter delivery just um, is something that they're forced to do because you know you need to have a post system, but everyone's just losing money on that part. So they're trying to you know lose less money um, without reducing the service too much. But I mean, how often do you need a letter delivered? You know, it doesn't matter if it was delivered one day later. That's what you know. There's still express post, obviously, for that. If you if you need something delivered, I'm fine with it. I'm I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna be okay with this change. You know, you know, there's a uh, t- talking post. Like, so I'm back in Houston now, and Houston being a big hub in the United States, I ordered something on Amazon today at like 2 p.m. and it was here at like 4:30. That is just crazy to me. Like, like the, the, how fast, and it was just like some random, some random dude in a car pulled up and ran over and here's your super glue. I was like, oh, dang, thanks, man. So Vestas is increasing its expansion of the service business, I think. They've announced the acquisition of Utopus Insights. So they had purchased, actually purchased the company back in 2018 for roughly $100 million. Uh, Utopus Insights provides weather forecasting for solar and for wind. Uh, and it, that they have a, a platform which is pretty popular uh, that uh, a lot of the industry uses called Cypher. And so it has an advanced forecasting techniques. And we've seen some of these companies around at uh, some of the conferences like ACP uh, that they're trying to predict tomorrow's or next week's weather. So, you know, um, how much energy you're going to be producing. But because Vestas already owned it, it looks like they're going to pull it all in-house and make it a quote-unquote Vestas company now instead of an investment. This is interesting, Joel, just because as we wandered around uh, Blades Europe and talked to some of the Europeans, Vestas is trying to make a big splash in the service business with the full service agreements. And now it uh, looks like in some of the weather prediction aspects. Yeah. And Vestas is a company that they don't, when you think about full service agreements, don't get this wrong, they don't just work on Vestas turbines. They will work, they're, they're multi-brand, right? So when they're saying, oh, we're taking this off the market, basically, it's not just so it works for Vestas and their internal stuff. Um, that gives them a bonus, right? It puts a little another tool in their back pocket, especially when it's a tool that's already recognized and utilized by the industry, right? We call that the lemming effect. The lemming effect, once one or two of them go, uh, lemmings go, then all the other ones start to follow suit, like just watching you know ants go to something sugary on the floor. 
So when they have this this unit, you know, this Utopus Insights cipher inside, <laughs> then everybody wants to use it. Everybody, it's an industry recognized product. So if they bring it in house, then it makes their service options more attractive, and it gives uh, them, um, you know, the upper hand when they're trying to sign uh, full service agreements or OEM agreement or O and M agreements uh, against the competition. Phil, I definitely see a Vestas move now that Siemens Energy is really struggling and limiting where their sales are. Vestas is trying to become a much bigger player worldwide in all aspects due to um, really just the, the lack of GE and Siemens at the moment pushing back. And this seems like another one of those plays where they're expanding in, into areas you wouldn't think Vestas would be into, actually. Well, it's a different kind of vertical integration. Um, you know, normally a supply chain company is going to kind of vertically integrate supply chain things. This is an ancillary kind of capability um, to bolster the services business and potentially even the project development consulting uh, area, which obviously is an OEM. You do a fair amount of that with the project development company that you're partnered with if they're you know going to be sourcing your turbines. Um, but keep in mind as well that Utopus also does uh data analytics beyond just the weather forecasting they're also ever since the initial investment um as a standalone company um vestus has actually been feeding utopus some uh asset level scada data and other cms data etc that vestus has and that they were trying to analyze internally they've been kind of working in conjunction with utopus to uh, build a more robust uh, analytical platform. So bringing Utopus in-house uh, potentially also helps facilitate that. Um, keep in mind that Vestas had launched, you know, kind of uh, uh, a spare parts business and things that were kind of ancillary to their services business um, a while ago, and then they kind of pulled the plug on it. I, I get the sense that they're trying to regroup on some of those things now. And... Um, develop something more robust, uh, leveraging more robust data sets, analytics, et cetera, uh, that's actually going to allow them to introduce more capabilities in, in the future. To, to add on to that, Phil, either way, we're seeing Vestas make moves right now to capitalize on the absence of those Siemens in the market, like you were saying, Alan. Like just the, this last week, I saw Vestas announce, hey, it was like 193 gigawatt or gigawatt. 193 megawatt order. And then there was another uh, announcement, 200 megawatt order. So they're getting orders. They're capitalizing on that little bit of gap in the space to grab a foothold. It's a really interesting development. The, the wind players right now are battling. It's quiet. It's weirdly quiet. You don't hear a lot of news about it, but you see these acquisitions and these moves. And Vestas is definitely uh, trying to conquer the uh, chessboard at the moment. Rosemary, we went to, Joel and I went to, uh, Amsterdam to see the Blades Europe Forum. And so the whole time I'm watching some of these discussions about Blades and like, man, if Rosemary was here, she'd give them a piece of her mind about, about, about some of the, just sort of the kind of the more outlandish approaches to the Blades and how Blades are built, how Blades are assembled, what the future of Blades actually looks like. The one I want to talk to you about is uh, the segmented Blade concept. Right, so there's a, there's a real discussion in Europe, like blades are being built outside of Europe, and why can't we bring it back into Europe? How do we do that? We need to lower the cost, we need to make things simpler. And the concept is to build these segmented blades uh, where the, the shell 
and the internal structure is kind of Lego-y. Uh, <laughs> and so a, a blade, let's say a 100-meter blade is going to have like 25, 30 pieces where they can all fit inside of a, a standard Connex box and be put on a ship. So they would build these subcomponents and then put it on a ship door where it's going to go, and then they assemble it on site. Now, my first thought was like, wow, that's like super complicated, and Rosemary's going to tell me that structurally it's going to be very difficult to do. Well, now that we're here all together finally, what do you think of these segmented blades and the concept of building segmented blades? I think you were involved in at least one segmented blade previously. Yeah, the two-piece blade for the Cypress turbine, the GE Cypress turbine. I worked on on that project. That was the last blade that I was working on, I think, before I left LM. Um, big, big challenges involved in making a blade in pieces. Um, and that's just, yeah, that's just two pieces. And that blade as well, it's not like you don't split it in half. It's like a big blade section of about, I don't know, 60-ish metres and then the tip of about, you know, 10, 15, 20 metres. So, you know, it's um, the split comes towards the tip. And the reason for that is because it is really challenging structurally. Um, when turbine blades, you know, they're just attached at the root and then they're this really, really long cantilever structure just sticking out there with a lot of big, big forces trying to, you know, bend it and break it. And the way that a wind turbine blade uh, deals with that is through the use of composite materials. And in a, a fiber reinforced composite material like fiberglass or carbon fiber, uh, you get a, a lot of strength and stiffness for a low weight because you can put the fibers running in the direction that you need the strength and stiffness, right? So the um, blades are very, very strong in that one direction along the length of the, the blade, and they're not as strong in the other directions that they don't need to be. And so, you, you know, you really target your properties where you need them. And so you get something that's very light. But the problem is that when you want to make a two-piece blade, then you're going to obviously cut at some, some point along the blade span, you've got to cut, and there's not going to be any fibers running all the way across that cut. So if there's no fiber continuously running across the join, then you don't transfer the loads from one side to the other easily. It has to go through a pin or some bolts or, you know, a patch or however you choose to um, put your blade together. So that's the basic challenge you're going with. There's some other materials challenges as well. Most or all um, utility scale wind turbine blades currently use thermosetting resins, which don't, that's the, you know, the plastic that holds all the fibers together. And that kind of plastic, it doesn't melt. You can't melt it. You can't weld it. So um, you have to, the, the way that, you know, you, you put a blade together, you make it in, in one piece because once the resin is set, you can't do anything to it after that. It's a, a rigid component that's going to be exactly in that way for the rest of its lifetime. So if you want to do a, a repair or if you want to, you know, assemble multiple pieces of a, a blade that's made out of a thermoset resin, then you're going to have to do a complicated repair where you, um, yeah, you know, you, you stack up layers of, of glass to try and, you know, make up for that issue that I mentioned where you've got cut fibers that can't transfer loads. You've got to end up um, putting in a whole lot more layers over the top to get the load transferring um, and also to get the, the resin uh, of the new piece to stick to the, the old structure. So one way that you can overcome that is by using thermoplastics, which do melt, but the problem 
with them and the reason why no one uses them yet is that they're not usually not as strong or as stiff as the thermosets. So a lot of the work in multi-piece blades is about um, changing the structure so that it can use these thermoset plastics. Um, and then you would be able to, you know, bring a shipping container worth of blade pieces to site, put them together, and then maybe use heat welding to assemble them. And you should be able to, you know, like have some um, layers that can can stack up and um, instead of just, you know, like Lego bricks, instead of just putting you know, two, two bricks next to each other, you'd probably put another one over the top so that, you know, it's got some sort of um, strength and bending as well um, and weld it all up that way. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a good concept, um, and definitely worth pursuing. I do think it's complicated. And if you were able to transport a blade in one piece to site, then that is always going to be a lighter, cheaper, easier, faster way to do it. So, um, I think if you look at that that blade that I mentioned from GE, the Cypress blade that was made in two pieces, you know, they had this whole big thing about, oh, this is going to open up so much more, um, so many more locations to longer blades than what they've been able to um, deal with so far. We'll be the only people that can sell a turbine in these locations of this size because everyone else is limited in, you know, what they can transport there. But instead they found that people they solved all of those logistical problems and in fact there isn't I don't think there's many if any maybe none um locations where you can only put in um a, a cypress wind turbine I, I think that they figured out a way to be able to get longer blades onto site and you know some of those technologies are like you, you've seen those trucks where they will tilt the blade up to get around a winding corner um, yeah. So, I mean, it's always a risk with when you've got a, you know, you've got a technology that you're developing to solve a problem. You're not the only person that's trying to solve that problem. And it's not, there's always going to be a bunch of different ways that you can solve it. And it's not, you know, it's not really obvious. Okay. I'm designing a two-piece blade, but my competition is actually a different kind of, um, truck, you know, that would probably, you know, a bit of a, bit of a, a weird competitor to, to foresee, but I don't think that the two the two piece blade has has definitely not taken the world by storm, um, and so I, I think it'll remain to be seen whether we we do need to move to a you know a really segmented um, a really segmented kind of blade design. Do we need bigger wind turbines onshore? I, I don't know. I think people are losing appetite for really huge wind turbines these days. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of other good reasons to move to a, a modular system. Thermoplastics are better for recycling and repairs might be easier. Yeah. So it's something to keep an eye on. The whole reason why segmented blades were believed to be necessary in the industry in the first place was because of transportation and logistics constraints, bridges and tunnels that have, you know, like your 4.3 meter uh, height restriction. And so that was kind of the impetus for, you know, Gamesa doing that segmented blade design on their, you know, the G128, um, you know, and, and other companies to have, to have investigated the technology. But like Rosemary just said, if you're doing a segmented blade, it's not always the most desirable thing to do. So you're not necessarily competing with other companies that have segmented blades. You're competing with, you know, the logistics companies that already have a vested interest in ensuring that they can continue to, you know, meet the demand that that they've um, 
you know, that they've already been serving with, with single piece blades in the first place. So, um, it's the insurance companies don't like the two piece blades, to be honest, there's, um, you know, they are more expensive. They're not necessarily more accident prone because they, the joint does tend to get overbuilt. Um, you know, the companies that we've worked with in the past, never win, um, and, and others that have investigated this type of technology. Um, it's, you know, it's a pretty robust thing if you're going to use it. Um, so they haven't had, um, terribly many failures or anything with it, but it's not the world's most desirable thing to, to do. You know, it's, it's one of those things like it's technologically feasible, but the commercial viability of this kind of solution was not what the industry really wanted. So the, the market's essentially moved on. Is, is that it? And that blade manufacturing is just going to occur in in lower cost countries is is that the outcome it's it's a combination of like rosemary also said you know there's there's a finite limit between social acceptance physical constraints and limitations etc to the size that you're going to have of onshore turbines yes you can do you know a, a 10 megawatt onshore wind turbine or a 12 megawatt onshore wind turbine in the outback in australia or the middle of nowhere in, you know, Finland or Norway, because there aren't any bridges and tunnels uh, that you have to go under anyway. Um, you know, you might be traversing over a fjord once in a while, but you have the ability to be able to transport a single piece blade that would be, you know, whatever, 85, 90 meters long plus to, to a project site, um, if you wanted to be able to do that. But the problem with it is there's a finite, uh, there's a finite kind of market demand and market um, uh, appetite for turbines that large. Most countries still have you know setback distance restrictions, uh, tip height restrictions, et cetera, et cetera, that preclude onshore turbines from really getting that big. So it's kind of a niche technology that has been developed for a segment of the market that never really evolved because again like we've been talking about the if you're going to build a project site it's got to be someplace that's accessible anyway you need to be able to have roads where you can do any kind of the transportation and logistics regardless of whether it's a segmented blade or not and so just because you know you might have good wind at the top of a, a ridge someplace if there's no transmission there, you're not going to build. Um, if there's, you know, no kind of regional demand, if if your substation is, you know, hundreds of miles away, it, you're you're not going to build in places where you would necessarily need, you know, the the segmented blade. Or, I mean, similarly, we've talked before on the show about things like, you know, on-site spiral welded towers or um, you know, other technologies where you've got like the, the, um, self-erecting tower, uh, you know, it's, it's all clever and great technology, but there's just no market appetite for, for that sort of stuff. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS, so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today.
Okay, so when we were in Amsterdam this this uh, past week at Blades Europe, we had actually had some of the new PES Wind magazines on our booth, uh, and some people flipping through them uh, really enjoyed some of the content. One of the curious things was that there was actually a bunch of companies there that had articles in them. Marones was there. Uh, we were there, of course, and there was there was a couple others. Was, oh, hey, I know these people. Or hey, I know a little bit about this. Uh, so that was kind of neat. Um, one of the things that tripped the trigger for me in the PES Wind uh, magazine for this quarter is uh, an article about Nortec. So the reason it was, to me, Nortec is is uh, part of my old life, right? Nortec's a Norwegian company that uh, creates some subsea technology uh, in a lot of different ways. But their their big claim to frame is famed is ADCPs, which is a, uh, a long way of, or it's a short way of saying acoustic Doppler current profiler. Okay, so now that seems kind of crazy, but what an acoustic Doppler current profiler is, is it's basically a way of measuring water subsea. So measuring water movement and flow. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons to do this. And the article kind of goes into some of them. Uh, the ADCPs, of course, Nortec makes a bunch of different ones. They make some uh, flat ones that go underneath vessels to track actual uh, vessel movement. So, right, like in a, in a, on an airplane, you have a pitot tube that tells you what your actual airspeed is, but that's different than the ground speed because airspeed takes into consideration the wind that's flowing with you or against you, or, you know, at a whatever angle to the, to the plane to get the actual effect that the wind is having on the aircraft. So you can, and then that you compare that to your speed over ground that you might get with a GPS. And they can be vastly different, right? If they're like, oh, we have a great tailwind. Well, the plane might think it's going 500 miles an hour because of the wind coming at its back. But you might be actually going 600 miles an hour on the ground. So an ADCP is actually that same kind of technology, but for vessels in the water. So it will actually, it shoots down, uh, like there's, it's a little kind of complicated. And maybe we can go into that about how it works. But it's measuring um, the current and flow of the water. Uh, if you have one underneath your vessel, it's under the vessel. So you may be sitting still in the, in a river, uh, but the ADCP will tell you that you're actually fighting a three-knot current, even though your GPS tells you you're going zero. Uh, and the motors are on and you're moving, or you're moving water so that you're fighting against that current. Um, so how does this fit into what we talk about here in, in renewables? Of course, offshore wind. So an offshore wind, we, we've talked about it before, all the site characterization that needs to be done uh, before any kind of development can go in the water. You need to know what met ocean data. So what kind of currents are out there? What kind of wave heights are you getting? All of those kind of things, right? Uh, directions, speed, flow. And then you need to map the subsurface. Uh, so know exactly, you know, what, uh, you know, what depth the water is and if there's rocks down there, if it's mud or silt and what uh, what the topography, basically, what you look at on the surface of the earth, what that looks like on the seafloor. But then uh, also because we're driving piles or, or suction caissons below the mud line, you need to know what is uh, below the mud line. So you need to know the first 5 to 10, 20, 30, 40 meters of surface to be able to do geotechnical investigation on it to see if your uh, structure is actually going to hold up or be able to be installed or or cables are going to be able to be trenched in or whatnot. So there's a ton of work that needs to go offshore. Uh, the difficulty of offshore work, though, and this is where the ADCPs from Nortec come into play, positioning is very, very hard. 
you cannot use GPS on subsea instrumentation because GPS doesn't go through water. Uh, if you want to test this theory, um, I don't know, hold your, put your phone underneath a pool and see what happens to the GPS. It's just not going to work. <laughs> this may be a crude way of testing it, but hopefully it's waterproof. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so to get so to get uh, proper measurements, you need to combine a lot of sources to get a good uh, X Y Z location of your instrumentation and 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 orientation of it. Some of this comes in, um, you know, you can have GPS on the boat. You may know how long your tow line is and the direction you're going. So, if you're towing an instrument behind you, um, say a uh, you know a um, uh, uh, echo sounder to give you depth and and map the seafloor. Great. So you know where your vessel is and where your tow line is. Say it's 40 meters behind you and you know you're heading this way. However, you may have a current coming against the vessel this way. So it's moving that off to the side. You don't know it's moving it though because you can't see it and the GPS can't see it back there. So now you're relying on adding an ADCP, an acoustic Doppler current profiler to kind of tell you where it's moving subsea. And you may have to add other things like a USBL, like a, a short baseline acoustic sensor to be able to ping back and forth. And there's a very sophisticated software that will tie all these instruments together and give you good positioning. So you're, it's like um, uh, you can't make chicken soup out of chicken poop, if you've ever heard that before. That's a Wisconsin term has to be. It's, it's, it's termed a little bit different when we say it in Wisconsin, but same concept. <laughs> So you have to have good data in to get good data out, right? So if you're out there dragging these uh, instruments around the uh, in the ocean and you don't have good measurements on where the data actually came from, then your analysis is going to be you know flawed from the beginning. So adding all these tools on, like the Nortec DV, uh, or ADCPs or DVLs, Doppler velocity logs, will uh, make the the actual analysis of the seafloor and site characterization more accurate so it's not just boats driving around and in, in grids out there there's actually highly trained um uh, so highly trained personnel running extremely customized software uh with very expensive instrumentation to be able to do these things correctly so how does this affect uh the the one thing i'm really interested in and we need to have them on the podcast the ridgeway rock bag group does if they have to know where the current flow is to place those bags properly right they just don't start dumping rocks randomly yeah so adcps uh, sometimes depending on where you're dumping things you may put those out on the seafloor so you can actually put these things on tripods out on the seafloor in regular areas and then you'll know the current and direction of the current live feedback to the vessel so you can tether them or you can you know get information back and forth from usbl communications but when they're doing big projects, in, you know, like in the North Sea, there's always issues with um, scour. Scour being when, when currents flow past monopiles or flow over rock dumps, they create this, this basically, you know, the uh, water flow creates a scoop. It creates turbulence and it might move some, some sediment in the wrong direction uh, because they have two and three knot currents regularly subsea in the North Sea. Uh, that's not an, not an abnormal thing. You think that of the ocean as a big stable place, but the ocean is constantly moving at all depths, the water is. So if it's Ridgeway rock bags and you're out there and the deeper of the water you're in, the more the current can play with you, right? So if you're on the surface and you're on a dynamic position hold and you're, you're a big barge with the, you know, the um, crane off the side is holding there, well, 
the position on the tip of the crane, you thinking that it's going to go straight down the crane wire to where it's dumping. By the time you get down there, that rock bag is big. It's getting pushed by the water. You might be a couple of meters off. And if you're a couple of meters off of the cable that you're trying to land on, then you're not going to land on it. And all of a sudden, a year later, or you do a post-dump inspection with an ROV, you go, uh, hey, those rock bags missed, man. Uh, and that's a big problem because now you got to go back, remobilize the vessel and, and get them back in the correct places. Okay. This is really complicated. I would assume that they'd have to sample the ocean floor over a long period of time. It seems like the currents move around a little bit seasonally, right? Yeah, that's going to be a, like a meta ocean campaign, right? So that's where like Nortec makes, they make stuff for everything, right? Nortec makes things to put on the bottom of your boat. They make things to put on survey instrumentation. They make things to have standalone meta ocean data collection. They make all kinds of stuff. But yeah, if you're talking meta ocean data, so like there's a company, um, TGS, TGS is a Norwegian company. They specialized for a long time in uh, oil and gas data. So they had seismic data all over the world, onshore and offshore based on spec, right? So if you were an oil company and you were looking in this block, you could just call up TGS and say, hey, can you give me what you have for 2D seismic lines in this area? And they'll be able to tell you what they have and, and sell it to you at a premium. Uh, what, they, what they did a few years ago as a pivot, TGS is a very, very, very uh, smart company. Um, they, to get into renewables, they purchased 4C Offshore. So 4C Offshore was in the process of developing kind of spec data on meta uh, but meta ocean data so seafloor currents um wind resource topside weather conditions um and not only seafloor currents but mid-level currents sea, uh, surface currents surface temperatures salinity all these crazy measurements that you need to have 4c offshore was developing a big database globally for all of those um, they started focusing on all the areas where renewable energy would be installed. So if there's an if there's an area where there's a lot of oil and gas activity, yeah, most of that data exists, but now you're starting to see renewables branch out where there is no oil and gas activity, say East Coast US. Uh so there's companies out there collecting that data over large uh long campaigns, year two, three, four, five, um, to get higher resolution data rather than just whatever you can, you know, download from NOAA online. Okay, this is really cool. I know I read through that article about Nortec and it was a lot to absorb because it's a very technical article, but it is interesting how much work goes into the siting on offshore wind turbines and just knowing what the sea is doing is a major part of that. So if you're interested in offshore wind or onshore wind, you need to pick up the latest PES Wind magazine. You can just get it online at PESWind.com. Hey, Uptime listeners. We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PES Wind at PESWind.com. Well, Fraunhofer has been working on a, a drum-based ice protection uh, method for wind turbine blades. And this one's a little different than anything I think you've seen in the past. Uh, some of the criteria, at least one of the criteria, was that it needs to be um, whatever chemical they were going to apply to the blade had to be uh, neutral, right? No impact on the environment. 
So they came up with a really interesting coating. It's a combination of wax and urea that they can spray on the wind turbine blades and it's environmentally friendly. It sticks to the blades, but it helps prevent ice buildup on the blades. And if you've ever, like in Massachusetts, when it's icy outside, if you take some fertilizer, which is basically a urea, if you throw if you throw that out on the on the ice, it'll it'll melt the ice. So I think the concept is urea in a waxy film will help prevent ice on blades. Now, uh, the way to apply it, obviously, the way to do this easily is with a drone. And that just brought flashbacks to Arone's first attempt at this years ago. That's probably five, six, seven years ago. If everybody remembers, there's actually a YouTube video of them uh, de-icing a wind turbine blade. And I think that was a, um, a hot glycol solution probably at the time uh, that uh, they were using as a demo. And we saw that, we saw that drone uh, last week, Joel, on the wall. It's huge. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big drone. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting that Fraunhofer's back onto this type of approach, and Rosemary, being our resident blade expert and anti-icing expert, I assume that you have been playing around with urea and wax for a long time. Is that something that you studied in college to figure out how to keep blades clean, or is this a good approach, or what? Where Where are you going with this, Alan? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's a very odd. It's a very odd approach. I, I'll have to say that when I when I saw it, I was like, "Really?" <laughs> it's like an old farmer's technique, and maybe that's where they picked it up. It's an old farmer's technique. I think that the approach makes sense. So I, I haven't dealt with that particular mix of materials before, but when I was working on de-icing, um, yeah, back in my days as the I was in that in that role in charge of blade heating systems at LM Wind Power. Definitely, there were plenty of kinds of ice phobic or anti-icing coatings that people wanted to sell us as being, you know, the solution to um, de-icing in wind turbine blades. Because the only method that works currently is to heat the blades up um, and to yeah, melt the ice off that way. And of course, you need to know ahead of time that <laughs> you're going to have a, a blade that's going to ice a lot in order to be able to do that. It adds quite a lot of cost to a blade, and it also adds just so much to the to the turbine operation and maintenance as well um so i think everybody would always prefer that you could have a passive um system and not have to install any kind of you know electrical um heating mats all the way down a blade and deal with all the the issues with you know potentially overheating the structure or attracting lightning or anything like that so um yeah the blade coating for passive ice removal or um yeah, ice prevention is an obvious approach. Heaps of people were involved in it. And what I think is interesting in, in this project is that they have kind of bypassed the biggest weakness of that approach in the past because a lot of these coatings, they, they work in, in the lab. You can, you know, coat a piece of material and put it in an icing wind tunnel and say, oh, look, it, you know, it, it works. But it's very different to how they work in reality because once you've got a coating on a blade in the field and then, you know, um, they're probably, it's not going to be in its perfect condition by the time an icing event comes along. You know, you've got uh, leading edge erosion, you've got bugs that are going to stick to it and um, coatings degrade. And every material that I looked at during my time, uh, it, did, it didn't work 
in the field that, you know, they just didn't last well enough. And a lot of the time, probably even maybe most of the time, the coatings when they were worn a little bit actually were worse for attracting ice than, than a blade without the coating. So it's just a really hard problem. So Fraunhofer seemed to have sidestepped that by not expecting the coating to last for a long time. So what they're doing is saying, okay, this is a coating. It needs to last for a few weeks, but then we can just keep on reapplying it over and over during the winter. Um, so, so that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, however, what I'm missing from the, I've just read a couple of articles about it and I'm just missing actual demonstrated use in the field. I still feel like they've got a lot of computer simulations. They've tried their drone out on a, a piece of blade. They've done icing wind tunnel tests, but where's the actual test on, you know, it's not that hard once you've got a, a, a drone, you know, you can get access to a wind turbine, spray your coating on it and then you know, measure it, see if it's, see if it's working. Um, I'm missing that. So it's like impossible to say anything more than this is, this is a interesting idea at this point. I just don't know why people make these announcements just, just a bit early, <laughs> you know, and I guess it's just coming up to winter in Europe now. So they probably haven't had, you know, they've been working on this for the last six months, then um, they wouldn't have had, I guess, an icing event um, likely. Maybe they're, they're ready to go, but I don't know, if I was their communications department, I'd just wait a, um, <laughs> till March or April and, um, you know, say, how, how did this work over your first, um, you know, icing season campaign? And then be able to say more than, cool idea, nice work, guys. <laughs> My take on it, though, is the, the biggest problem I see technically cooled. Whether the chemical compound works or not, that's not my concern right now. My concern is operationally, you're going to be sitting in the O&M office on Monday morning and see the forecast and say like, oh, Wednesday it might ice up. Okay, we're going to get a drone out and now we're going to go. And now wind farms in Germany are much smaller than in the, the North America. So even if it's 25 turbines, 40 turbines, you're going to say, we're going to go out there with this drone. We're going to go and fly these 25 turbines, 75 blades. We're going to coat them all with this stuff before Wednesday and hope it doesn't or hope it works like i i just that to me is asinine to even think that it would could possibly work in a real life situation i agree with you except that the headache that uh, a wind farm owner operator in a site that is affected by icing they have just the hugest incentive to you, you wouldn't believe the lengths that some of these um these guys go to you, you know the weiss tech system which is a, a retrofitable um electric heating mat they've had projects where they took down every single blade on a wind farm um in installed a temporary factory on site and got every single blade through there to wrap a heating blanket around the blade uh, taped a electrical cable to the, the, you know, to run down the length of the blade and and put it back in place. I mean, now that's that's a pain. <laughs> and the, you, you know, I've seen them present at at conferences and from all reports that wind farm owner is happy with the result of that. That was worth it to them because they were just experiencing so much pain. So I think like you're right that it's not. It's not ideal, but um, yeah, a wind farm owner that has ended up with an icing problem that they weren't expecting is uh, like really in dire straits. And it's, it's a pretty common problem, actually, because, you know, when you're doing a site assessment for a new wind farm, uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of pressure to have your icing assessment 
come back as saying it's not a big problem. So, you know, you get these assessments that say, oh, yeah, you'll probably have um, AEP losses of 2 3 4%. It's not really worth installing a, an icing system. And, and then you see a lot of the time it's actually 6 7 8%. And um, that, that means that, you know, that's a, a significant loss and they should have installed, a, um, you know, blades with heating, but it's too late after the fact. And so, yeah, I think that there is... I mean, it's not like a majority of wind farms, obviously it's, you know, it's a niche application, but it's the niche is maybe small, but the people in that niche are just absolutely desperate. So I think, that, I think that there would be quite um, a market for this kind of technology, even with the extra pain that's involved operationally. So I think I've got it solved, Rosemary. This is how we're going to do it. It's going to be a fire hose, right? But the fire hose is going to be connectable in the base of the tower and the fire hose is going to be already run up the tower and there'll be a little fire hose reel on the top. So you roll up with the big pump pump truck full of urea, you hook up the you hook up the pump truck on the bottom and the guy climbs up to the top, pops the top off the nacelle and sprays the blades down from up on the nacelle. That guy is going to smell horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, urea and urea is not cheap. So I run a diesel truck, right? So DEF that you put in diesel pickups right now, because of the crisis in Ukraine, uh, DEF prices went through the roof, which is just urea and water. Like there's nothing, there's nothing else in it. It went from being able to get this stuff at like seven to $9 a gallon to right now it's like $18 a gallon for this stuff to put in my pickup. So if they're spraying the same, if they're spraying the same kind of stuff, that's going to be expensive. I have a question, and this has to do with the way we do it in, on airplanes. On airplanes, we have something called a weeping wing. Have you ever seen this, Rosemary? Well, you take the leading edge of the wing, and they drill a bunch of laser holes in it, and they pump a fluid through it using a glycol solution, and that just kind of runs back and removes the ice. Is this a similar application? You could actually pump this stuff up up into the leading edge and just let it run out and de-ice the blade? Yeah, I mean, you, it's going to be complicated to deal with the rotation of the, um, of the rotor if you're pumping something from, from the ground, you, you know, um, you've got, I, I don't know, maybe you run the turbine 100 rotations and then <laughs> shut down for a couple of minutes to run it backwards to, to unspool your hose again. Uh, yeah, possibly. Um, or you can use Joel's method of, you know, mounting some sort of um, that guide on the the tower and spray a, a hose that's connected on the on the ground. I mean, honestly, I don't see that that is so um, so wild compared to a drone. Except uh, obviously, it is a bit of a a retrofit needed. But um, yeah, no, I think that the the drone system does sound pretty versatile. Yeah, the yeah the tr the trouble with drone is once as soon as you get up in the air, that big of a drone, and you're you have to you have to hoist all of that mo that fluid up as well. So there's a ton of weight, and that thing's weighted down. And then once you start spraying, and you're spraying at I don't know what this psi, even if you're spraying at 200 psi, that much that you're gonna coat a blade, that thing gets so hard to control up there that. Uh, I don't know. I just think you're 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 asking for trouble with the drone. I think though that this Fraunhofer approach, where they're not trying to spray like something to remove ice, it's not like it, it's a coating, right? A very thin coating. So presumably, there's a lot less volume that they're going to have to spray compared to if you're just trying to, yeah, I don't know, sp spray antifreeze all over a blade. Um, 
Yeah, and it, it they say it's only needs to be done every few weeks. So I guess, you know, like if you've got a long range weather forecast, you can see it's okay, it's gonna get gonna get cold in ten days, we'll start spraying. But it it, it is it is hard to see how you know you could get it done quickly enough to you know make it make it worthwhile so rosemary says there's a chance yeah no i mean this is so you know when i used to work when i used to work in de-icing that was my job every every single day for like four or five years and um i definitely used to get tracked down in the canteen or at conferences or or wherever everyone has a you know a bright idea along the lines of of joel's one many of them much more crazy than that um and so, you know, like I've probably got a bank of um, 50 or 100 ideas that I've heard before. And th this one would be, you know, like in the top couple of percent of those ideas. So I, like, I don't think this is a bad idea at all. Um, De-icing, it's kind of an area where there's only bad ideas. Like every, everything, it, like this current system is bad, um, but it's just the least bad of, of all the ones that we've got. So, you know, that's what we're going with. I don't think there's anyone that's working on, on de-icing of wind turbine blades and is like, oh, no, this system is so good that we don't need to change it. Like that, No one thinks that. It's just full of headaches and, uh, and pain and costs and, you know, like <laughs> it's a reason why I, why I got out of that role, you know. Like it's only so long that you can kind of deal with all that. So, you know, I'm the first to, to wish for improvements in this field and, um, when it comes, I'm sure it is eventually going to be in, in the form of a, a coating of, of some sort, but whether that's, you know, like a magic coating that just repels all ice and stays on there for the life of the blade, that's obviously the holy grail. Maybe something like this is a step, a step towards that and they'll, you know, incrementally improve until you don't need to spray it every two, three weeks. You can do it, you know, twice a season and then maybe once a season. And, um, you know, if it was once a season, then that would be something that would you know obviously be able to fit into any um you know wind turbines uh, maintenance plan so you know i think there's a high chance that this is a step on the eventual direction but uh, like i said without actually <laughs> having they've never used it they've just they've got a little uh, you know five meter or two meter piece of um blade tip that they have sprayed sprayed the coating on and that's them saying yeah we've tested a prototype I'm like well okay yeah like you've tested a prototype of your drone but you haven't tested that it does what it's supposed to do. So, you know, they've got a long way to go before we, we know, um, you know, this is the, the path to pursue. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And also give a five-star rating to Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie, if you haven't done that already. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Oh,